My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. Given the vast amounts of fear and uncertainty that are surrounding not only the job market in general right now, but specifically in the entertainment industry with the writer strike, I figure that now is the perfect time to evaluate where you might be in your career path, identify your unique strengths, and make the changes necessary to get you one step closer, if not all the way to your next dream job. So that's why for the month of May, I'm going to be releasing one of my most popular top five podcast playlists, where I've narrowed down over 200 of my podcast conversations to the five very best authors and experts who can help you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In this top five series, you're going to hear a range of topics that are discussed, such as how to navigate difficult career transitions, how to find your why and really define what you see as your rich life, how to be happy and successful at the same time, a very delicate dance, how to overcome creative burnout, and most importantly, how to effectively tell your own story. If you haven't already, make sure that you visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast to download your very own customized podcast playlist that is based on your goals and interests. All right, without further ado, here's the final part of this five interview series with Chris Vogler, who's a Hollywood story consultant and author of the wildly popular guidebook to mythic structure for storytellers, The Writer's Journey. Whether you're interested in just learning how to apply the hero's journey structure to your own work as a writer, or more importantly, if you're looking for ways to better understand and rewrite your own story, this conversation is a must listen. You can find the original show notes for this interview at optimizeyourself.me slash episode 205. I'm here today with Chris Vogler, who's a Hollywood story consultant, and he is the author of The Writer's Journey, which is a guidebook to mythic structure for storytellers. And your short list of experience and accomplishments includes reviewing and providing coverage for over 20 thousand scripts, which I can't even fathom, and you've consulted for multiple studios over the years, including a long stint with Disney, where you heavily influenced projects such as The Lion King, Hercules, and Aladdin, to name a small few. Chris, it is beyond a pleasure to be able to share the microphone with you today and allow you to share your expertise with my audience. Can't thank you enough for being here. Well, it's a, a great thrill for me uh, from our little conversation so far. I, I know we have a lot of uh, ideas in common about editing and other things and uh, uh, about uh, how all of these uh, 
things that can be abstract and theoretical actually have very solid practical applications in our lives. And, uh, you know, are, it's a wonderful set of tools, and I'm very happy to be able to talk about it. Yeah, I'm excited we could finally bring this together because I see this as a foundational educational resource for either anybody that just wants to learn how do I become a better screenwriter or how do I become a better editor or even a better composer. Any any craft that involves storytelling, I think understanding the hero's journey and the components is vitally important. But as we also discussed a little bit uh, before offline, I think it's just as important to understand the hero's journey, not to tell and create fictional stories for a living, but to have the power to structure and rewrite your own story. So we're first going to talk about nuts and bolts, understanding story structure, but then we're going to get really existential and ask, well, how do I do this for myself and my own life? Um, But where I want to start is, and you can probably speak to this a lot more than I could, but it seems to me that nowadays, a lot of people that are coming into the industry, they kind of take for granted how simple it is to get an answer to the following question. Can anybody tell me what the blueprint is to write a story? Sure. Go online and buy The Writer's Journey. Done. Here's your blueprint, right? But I don't think they really appreciate how just a few decades ago, there was no blueprints and people didn't really understand how stories worked, even though for millennia and most of, if not all, recorded human history, we've kind of had a basic story structure and we didn't know it. And then all of a sudden, you come along with this random memo that ends up in a Xerox machine that becomes the periodic table of storytelling. So talk to me about your practical guide, what it is, and how in the world it ended up on the desk of none other than Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yes, well, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, In my lifetime, there has been a raising of consciousness, is the way I would put it, about these, um, what you might call the unwritten rules of storytelling. Um, These were, you know, there's a set of principles about how you communicate with an audience, how you connect up with them and allow them, invite them in to feel that the story is informing their lives somehow. This is, you know, a body of knowledge that's developed over time, but it was very much in the background of consciousness. And it was something that might have been passed around in pieces among uh, playwrights and uh, actors and uh, people uh, who were uh, crafting uh, various forms of entertainment and writing novels and so forth. But it was never codified, um, never sort of abstracted and put into a set of principles and so forth. And that happened um, in my time, uh, you know, when I went to film school, which was in the mid 70s, it's amazing to think this, but there weren't any screenwriting books to speak of. It it was in that time, maybe uh, towards the 80s, that uh, you first got Robert McKee lecturing and writing about uh, his ideas on story structure, and uh, a great man named Sid Field, uh, wrote an excellent book abstracting his knowledge of of uh, screenplays into uh, a simple paradigm, uh, the three act structure, and you know the, these were uh, boons and and great benefits to uh, all of us who work because it articulated these things and brought them out into consciousness. And my little part in it was before any of this happened, I was on the trail looking for the unwritten rules of storytelling. I grew up in the Midwest on a farm 
and uh, was very distant from Hollywood, but felt a real direct surge of some kind of weird energy watching movies. And just I wanted to tear the screen open and jump in there, you know, and, and be part of it somehow. I think you had a similar uh, experience, desire uh, rising in you. So uh, I was looking because I felt there must be a code. There must be some what we would call today an algorithm for how you do this magic process of connecting with the audience invite them and make them feel that in some way the story is really about them maybe it's a metaphor for what's going on in their own lives and they look quite closely at uh, just about any story that comes by for clues about how can i improve my own performance in my own life uh, by comparing it with that of other people in the story so i was on the lookout for something like this and i couldn't find it and even, uh, you know, going to film school, uh, there was very, very little, just the, the most boilerplate, hardcore stuff. There's a beginning, a middle and an end, and you need to have some uh, exposition and you need to have transitions and, you know, real basic stuff. But um, the lightning bolt for me was uh, encountering the work of this man, Joseph Campbell, who had written uh, in an academic way, kind of. He was a popular writer and he wrote for a general audience, but he came from a sort of academic background and he identified this thing, the hero's journey, which was a pattern of uh, some number of steps that uh, he found in most of the myths and fairy tales and legends of the world. And I found this while I was in film school um, and coincidentally, it happened to be around the time that the first Star Wars movie came out. So I read Campbell's book and the lightning bolt struck me that uh, this is it. This is the thing I was looking for. This is the code. Although he wasn't thinking about movies, Campbell had identified uh, this inner uh, structure. So um, then I went to see the first Star Wars movie just sat there with my jaw dropping farther and farther down to my chest because it was following Campbell's outline given in the book step by step by step. And I later learned that uh, George Lucas had been influenced by Campbell's work. He had encountered it in school and uh, said this is as he had the same reaction I did. This is something useful that we can plug into commercial movies. It doesn't have to be abstract or theoretical or anything. It's, it communicates directly. So I, I knew I was on to something. And then I went through a long period of trying to apply it. Uh, I got jobs in the uh, in the movie business as a story analyst, a reader of scripts and had to write reports. And that's how I started racking up my 20,000 uh, was by doing eight or 10 scripts a week and writing reports on them. And all the time had this hero's journey model at hand to compare with the scripts that were going by me. And I would see, oh, there's step three and step four and step nine and step seven. Uh, it may be jumbled in different order, but still present in every script that came by. So I had a body of uh, material to to feast on and, and, and show me all the possibilities and all the different variations and uh, to get it off of being a formula 
into more a set of tools or like you said the periodic table or the color chart or something uh or the notes uh, of of the scale uh that allow us to combine them in many different ways to to get results but with some kind of inner sense of connectedness and structure so um I ended up at Disney after going to several studios and working uh, for a few years. And they were in a renaissance then trying to rebuild their animation department. And um, I decided to uh, take this Campbell idea and condense it into this very, very tight form that was in vogue at the studios then, which was memoranda, memos, that went around within the executive uh, halls to dictate. And Jeffrey Katzenberg was very good at this. He was an excellent memo writer and he laid out sort of a philosophy of the company and a way of doing business and guidelines. And this was all wonderful because most of the time, movie making is very chaotic and disorganized and uh, not uh, centrally controlled or uh, the, in, in modern times anyway, things are uh, very haphazard. But he imposed a little bit of order and it really sort of unified the films of that time. And so I said, I'm going to write a Jeffrey Katzenberg style memo and put in it in about seven pages all these points that I had gleaned from Campbell. And uh, as as you might know, there's kind of a legend or a, a myth that I've created about this, but it was true that uh, I left a copy of the, uh, of the memo that I had written on the Xerox machine and somebody found it. You know, I left it on the, the copying plate and somebody found it and uh, plagiarized it and sent it up the chain of command to Katzenberg. And I heard about it through the grapevine and um, decided, well, I'd better step up and uh, claim this, uh, which was way out of my character comfort zone uh, to stick my neck out like that and go, uh, you know, past the chain of command to go right to the top. But I wrote a letter to Katzenberg and claimed it. And I said, I I hear you've been uh, aware of this and that you thought it was a good idea. And uh, I'm uh, I'm the real author of this. And to my amazement, he called me immediately. As soon as he got the letter, he opened it, read it. He picked up the phone and he said, uh, I have a job for you. You need to go over and talk to the animation people because we're restarting and we have new energy there. And they were doing Beauty and the Beast and starting Lion King. And... Um, I just walked in the door at the right time and and they had uh, already received my memo. The memo passed around and became like a viral sensation, not only at Disney, but all over Hollywood, uh, because it was in this very condensed form and could be easily transmitted. So uh, I uh, found a, a ready audience in animation and um ended up working quite closely with them on Lion King and uh, plugged into it quite a number of uh, scenes and bits and uh, concepts that that came directly out of Campbell's work. And it just was a good fit for that particular uh, picture. So that's how the the whole thing got rolling. And then eventually I uh, developed it through uh, teaching at UCLA Extension Writers Program. Um, I uh, tested the ideas on my students and eventually turned it into my book, The Writer's Journey. So that's uh, the, the condensed version of, of my 
exciting journey to this point. I love it. Uh, there are probably, if I wanted to, I could turn this into just what you shared into a four part 90 minute series for each part, breaking down all of these because there are so many amazing takeaways. The first one is that clearly you understand story structure because what you did, and I just, I'm just kind of breaking this down for people. Mm-hmm. I knew where I wanted to end up with this story was the memo on the desk and how it led you to where your career path is, but you didn't answer my question. You structured the answer to my question by sharing your hero's journey. Right. Here was me in the ordinary world, stepping into the world of adventure, right? And the, 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 memo and everything, all these various stages, you constructed it using the hero's journey, which we're going to get into. Where I want to go back to, though, which I think is important, you kind of alluded to this. You don't even know this yet, but you and I have a lot more in common than you think. I also grew up on a farm in the Midwest. Uh-huh. So to me, growing up, and I know that you were from uh, Missouri, correct? Right. I was from Wisconsin, so give or take, same general area, but yeah. I would assume that we can share a lot of stories about our past that minus the zip code are probably almost identical. Um, but I think the the thing for me is that, and this happens for a lot of people everywhere, but specifically feeling so disconnected from an industry of Hollywood, you watch a movie or a TV show and it looks like magic. How do they do this? It's a magic trick. Yeah. But the people that do it really, really well have realized and discovered this isn't magic, it's math. There's Mm -hmm. a formula, like you said, there's an algorithm to it, and you helped bring structure and simplicity to that algorithm. I've gone through The Hero with a Thousand Faces. I watched the the piece, I believe it was Bill Moyer had done an extensive multi-part series on PBS in the 80s, went through that whole thing. It's not easy to get through. It's challenging to go through either The Hero with a Thousand Faces or watch that series and be like, oh, I get it now. I understand story structure. So Joseph took something that was really complex and like you said, almost entirely in our subconscious and made it conscious. But you said, let me break this down into seven pages. The story structure of how we've told all stories through all of recorded human history, put it in a seven page memo. And all of a sudden you become the Jerry Maguire of Hollywood. The memo (laughs) is getting passed everywhere and it changes everything. But for me, the biggest takeaway here is that to be a great storyteller, yeah, there has to be some inspiration and some magic but there's a lot of math involved. Mm-hmm. And knowing that structure, as you said, having read 20,000 plus scripts, I would guess that largely the difference between the ones that were really working and really not working were the ones that weren't adhering to the basic formulas. Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, and that was what, what I got to test over and over again by uh, critically examining uh, the structure really of uh, uh, these many, many things. And they came in all forms. It wasn't just scripts. It was magazine articles and comic books. And uh, sometimes just somebody would come in and tell us a story about their life uh, and pitch it in the room. Uh, and so there was nothing even written down, but still uh, these things were all united by by having uh, this thing we, we call a story. Um, it's It's interesting, you use the term math, um, I flinch a little bit at that uh, because I'm not a naturally math-minded person. That was my weakness. Mm. Uh, but I could see that there was some kind of uh, inner logic and that some of it does follow, uh, I would say, maybe it's a little broader than math. Uh, it follows principles. Uh, some of them are scientific uh, like uh, many of the aspects of, of storytelling and developing characters and so forth have to do with magnetism and electricity, that there is 
uh, actual magnetism between characters. Uh, there are attractive forces and repelling forces. Uh, there is uh, something like electric current that runs through a well-constructed story. When you make two points in a story of opposition, that makes a current between them. And uh, you can send signals along that uh, piece of wire almost that uh, you can imagine to exist. So uh, there, there was something multidimensional going on uh, about storytelling. And I, I uh, sort of positioned myself as the guy who, this is partly because of being a script reader, you're exposed to everything. You know, you go to a party and somebody says, oh, yeah, I'm a nuclear physicist. And you go, I just read a script about that. Whatever it is, you've just read a script about it. So you know a lot about a lot of things just by the nature of that job. And so it it allowed me to be a generalist and to see, you know, patterns from many other uh, areas. If you know something about dance, you know something about storytelling. If you know something about playing a guitar, you know something about storytelling. If you know something about being a nurse, you know something about storytelling and so on. So all these disciplines, including a stint in the military, uh, helped me to uh, come at it from a lot of different directions and make uh, uh, a more three-dimensional picture. I love that you pushed back on this idea a little bit about yeah. math, because I think you're correct in saying that. I don't want to oversimplify, and I don't think that quality storytelling and movie making and TV making is magic. But you're right. It's not just math. But you and I, again, this is an area where we have so much in common. I love the idea of breaking things down into principles. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily rules or must follow this yeah. exact formula, but there are principles that must be followed. And if we break down the hero's journey, which I want to do in a second, it's a series of principles. And I think that some people do fall prey to its math. I'm sure you've heard this many times where it's sure. like, well, the ordinary world must end by page 14 and a half and they must have the call to the adventure by 16 and the meeting with the mentor must happen here. And you're like, it doesn't have to, but those are certain principles that are largely adhered to because they work and they've stood the test of time, right? So I, I think it's a matter of the, it's, it's the, whatever the sweet spot is between hundred percent magic and hundred percent math. It's somewhere in there being a great yeah. storyteller, right? Yeah. 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 I, I, I definitely would, would agree with that, that you have to, uh, you have to be light on your feet. And that means that you uh, can shift your weight depending on the needs of the story at hand of the scene you're working on. And sometimes you will be reaching into the bag of tricks of math that I have one plus one, what does that equal? And, uh, you know, I, I have a need and I have a wish and I have a desire and we put those things together. What does that equal? There are mathematical type of uh, formulas and equations embedded in this uh, art of storytelling. Uh, but it, 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 it can lead you down some wrong paths uh, and you're right, that that was one of the things that happened. As soon as Sid Field came online, there was an immediate uh, positioning of many executives and people who, uh, you know, decided how much money was going to be spent and that sort of thing, marketing people and so on, to, to say, it says in the book, this has to happen by this page. And, and it, it happened two pages later, so you got to take out two pages. They were very... Mm -hmm. 
literal minded about it. And, you know, you have to be lighter on your feet than that. Yeah. Well, I would guess that for for most creatives, most writers, most editors, whatever your position might be as a storyteller, very rarely has anybody ever given you the feedback. Well, it feels very formulaic. And that felt like a compliment. Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes. But in generally, somebody's like, well, it's formulaic. You're like, oh, well, I wanted to do something original and different. So, again, it's not all about math and formula. It's about these principles. Right. These these guiding uh, posts along the journey. And for anybody that is listening, first of all, this right here is the rule book. This is literally the Bible on structure, the writer's journey. If they want to read hundreds of pages and dig into it, that's what this is for. We're going to have a link in the show notes. But if I were to very literally answer the question. What are the stages of the hero's journey? I'm going to go through them very, very quickly because they're all in the book. What I want you to help me do, both for me and for my audience, is to boil it down into an even simpler sentence or two so we can not only apply it to our storytelling but our own lives. But very, very quickly, if somebody said, Zach, what are the stages of the hero's journey? I'd say, well, in Act 1, first you have the ordinary world. Then comes the call to adventure, the refusal of the call, the meeting with the mentor, and the crossing of the first threshold. Then we enter Act 2, and we have our tests, our allies, our enemies. There's the approach to the inmost cave, the ordeal and the reward, and then Act 3 is the road back, the resurrection, and the return with the elixir. And they would look at me and they'd be like, I'm sorry, what now? Right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody were to ask you and you were to explain it in plain language, what's the hero's journey? What are the steps? What does it look like? Well, you know, starting with that uh, ordinary world, um, This kind of gives you a baseline for the story. And if you put it into a common phrase, it would be, where is he coming from? You know, uh, uh, we we look at any story with the understanding that it picks a point in time to start, but there was time before that. And somebody is introduced to us at a moment in their lives, but there was a trail that got them there. And... um, that can be suggested or expressed, or it can be unveiled in the course of the story, but it's there. And uh, you, you need to acknowledge that, that this is the, uh, this is the world, the universe that the hero uh, exists in, and usually is a little uncomfortable there. That's the kind of key to that ordinary world is that uh, it may seem nice and perfect, but that usually uh, conceals some disturbance under the water. You know, the surface might be calm, but under the water, something's going on. So that something is the second stage, the call to adventure. And uh, this is something that uh, seems to be baked into almost every story. It's a necessity for the teller of the story to announce to the audience, hey, something is missing or something needs to be done and somebody's got to do it. So that uh, comes uh, many times in stories, there will be a literal trumpet call in the soundtrack. They will go to the brass instruments and uh, play some kind of horn call. And it coincides with somebody saying, you know, there's a problem down the street and uh, yeah, I'm not dealing with it, uh, but you're the sheriff, so you have to go deal with it. So the hero is is called in. And uh, typically they uh, are a little reluctant or fearful about that. And that's uh, under this third stage of the refusal of the call. Uh, some heroes 
are not reluctant, but somebody is in, in the composition. Somebody is fearful. And I think this is really important uh, for the audience so that they know uh, this is not a walk in the park. This is not uh, an easy picnic. Uh, this will be challenging. So uh, the hero often will express some fear or somebody in the scene expresses some concern. Um, the next thing is to overcome that, many stories bring in um, a mentor or the hero will touch base with some source of wisdom. And it might be internal, their own wiring diagram, their own sense of what's right, the moral compass, something like that, uh, their experience, uh, or it's some external figure uh, who often comes in the shape in myths of, of a wise old man or a wise old woman or a fairy godmother or something like that, uh, who uh, gives the hero some advice or some magic weapon or magic tool or a magic carpet or something of, of that nature. And this sort of symbolizes the need that we have when we go on an adventure to get some reassurance from maps, from people who've been there before, uh, from our own memories of, of similar events. So uh, next thing up is uh, once you're reassured uh, by connecting with this source, either internal or external, uh, is uh, crossing the threshold. And this is where the story really gets going. And everybody sort of feels this in the audience. They know that a certain amount of time is needed to prepare and tell me things about the character and what the problem is. And then there's a sort of shift in uh, almost the breathing rhythm of the story. And now it really gets rolling. The hero decides something to get involved or it, it's decided for him or her uh, by circumstances and off they go. Uh, next thing is they get into uh, this new world because most stories take place in two worlds, a world the hero knows, the ordinary world, and a special world. And that's what we really get excited about in travel is going someplace special and new. And so when you go there, uh, you will meet tests, allies, and enemies. You'll be tested in some small ways. You'll find out things are very different there. And you'll find some people or forces are uh, helpful to you. They become your allies uh, and some are not. And they might become your enemies or, or your uh, your uh, foe in that uh, special world. So uh, next stage is one of approach. This is stage seven in the scheme. And um, this is a period of time where we are marching, we are moving into the deeper into this special world and getting deeper in relationships. So it's all about going a, a little deeper and the almost breathing pattern of the audience may change. They may be excited at first in the first opening movements uh, and breathing in a kind of shallow way. And then they might breathe a little deeper as we go and sort of relax, like we're going to be here for a while. So there's uh, literal changes in, in the audience's physiology, even. Uh, but they get to know each other better, the characters, and the audience gets to know the characters better uh, and, and go past first appearances. So uh, next thing is now we've marched deep into this special world. We're going to confront something big and dangerous and scary uh, that may threaten our lives. Uh, and this is another kind of essential thing uh, that stories 
need to be uh, magnified and intensified by a confrontation with death or failure. Uh, failure is a form of death. It's the death of your hopes. It's the death of your ambitions. Uh, so we all fear that. And um, this is about facing your fears, whatever they are. They were evoked early in the story, uh, but now they are right in front of you and, and you have to confront those. And you may die as uh, heroes often do uh, in mythology. They literally die and go into the underworld and are reborn um, or they uh, go close to death. Uh, maybe they have to deal death to someone else. Uh, maybe someone near them dies. Maybe part of them dies. Maybe part of their hopes die. Something dies. And uh, that has a transformative effect, which leads to the next step, stage nine, which is the reward. So that's a kind of promise in the story that if you face your fears, there will be a reward for that. Uh, you will gain something, a uh, better uh, sense of confidence about yourself. Uh, better relationship with the other members of the team, uh, maybe more information, uh, maybe you've gained a treasure. So uh, it's a sort of celebration of uh, having faced your fear and survived. Uh, so next thing up is uh, the road back, which is now going into the third act. It's sort of the turning post for going into the third act where heroes realize uh, I've done my business in this special world. I faced my fear. I got the treasure. Now I have to take it home, so to speak, maybe literally back home or to the next stage of my development. Uh, and so I, I'm, I, I've got another challenge now, which is to finish this thing and follow through on what I've learned and apply it in the real world. So the heroes often have an intensification of energy at this point, which comes out in the form of chase scenes. There are a lot of chase scenes in movies everywhere. You can start with a chase scene, you can have a whole movie that's a chase, but they seem to concentrate about three quarters of the way through. At the end of the second act or the beginning of the third act, there is an acceleration of energy, and often it takes the form of a chase where someone's escaping or you're chasing after someone who's stolen something from you or they're chasing after you because you're trying to escape, something like that. It's a very, very strong uh, pattern that repeats. In the 20,000 uh, scripts I looked at, I would say it's in 19,000 of them that there's some kind of chase at that point. So uh, the last two the uh, stage 11 is the resurrection, where the hero goes through another facing off with death and failure. The possibility of death and failure is raised again, uh, but in a more magnified way. This is uh, where everything's on the line, and it's the climax of the story. And it has an effect on the hero and the audience of sort of purifying them and burning away all of their false ideas. Uh, so the hero finally uh, is purified by the experience and is uh, able to face the fears. And it should be very tense and suspenseful, and we should be worried that the hero is not going to make it or will lose. But uh, in the end, usually in most stories, unless it's a tragedy, most stories, uh, the hero will uh, work it out and then uh, enjoy the triumph. Uh, which is called Return with the Elixir, which is some kind of magic potion that heals all wounds or uh, solves all problems. 
And uh, Campbell said this was absolutely essential in a well-developed hero's journey story. Uh, the hero has to come back with something to share, either a good story to tell, uh, an example uh, of their behavior that, look, I've faced death and it was terrible, a terrible opponent, but I survived and it can be survived. You can overcome the most difficult things. So they become an example to uh, others. And that's uh, one form of the lecture. It might be love. It might be truth. It might be justice. Uh, there are a variety of ways that, that things can unfold as that last card is played. But it uh, kind of gives you the moral of the story and uh, gives you some uh, uh, sense of, of how life can go on with what you've learned and, and suggest that in your life, you might... Um, face a lot of difficulties, maybe repeatedly go back to the edge of death or failure. Uh, but in the end, you're going to come away with something uh, that's healing and, and useful to you. So that's the hero's journey. Uh, I, I see it as a set of warnings and promises, I guess. I hadn't put it that way before, but uh, that seems to be what what uh, emerges as I talk about it here is is that it's you know half the time it's telling you oh look out be scared woo this is really scary stuff and then half the time it's saying it's fine you you've got what it takes you can do it so uh, it's a it's a mix of those messages. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. 
Well, I appreciate that uh, beat by beat breakdown. And what I find so interesting about it is that if somebody had just randomly clicked a button, tuned the dial on the radio, if this weren't a podcast and they were back in the day and they knew nothing about you and your background and the fact that we were talking about, quote unquote, Hollywood screenwriting. They would just think we were talking about life. They would think, oh, somebody's talking about the stages of our lives right now, which is why I find the hero's journey so fascinating. And I want to get to that in a second. What I'd like to do as far as just understanding the structure, we've now broken down all the beats. But if we wanted to turn it into an elevator pitch and it was a matter of like if somebody said, how does story structure work? Well, there's three acts. There's, you know, the opening, there's the middle and there's the end. If we were going to take the hero's journey and really simplify it to an elevator's pitch and it's, let's say, three to five bullet points. Well, you have a character in an ordinary world, they're a call to adventure, this, that, and the other thing. What's the elevator pitch version to really understand this in just a couple of sentences and get the major beats, maybe not all 12 steps, but kind of the core beats? Well, I guess it would be something along the lines of uh, uh, an ordinary guy just like you and me, or an ordinary person just like you and me, um, uh, goes about their daily business, and then suddenly, as if from out of nowhere, uh, something happens that, uh, that causes them to realize they have to face something really, really difficult. And they go into it not knowing any idea about what it's going to be or, or what they're going to face, but they uh, they take a deep breath and they jump in anyway. Uh, they meet a lot of obstacles along the way, but they, in the end, are able to overcome because they reach deep down inside themselves. They find some inner source of strength. And through that, uh, they're able to overcome even the most difficult things. Uh, and I think the most important word in that elevator pitch is but. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this is something I learned in pitching and also in observing structure uh, in many, many examples, was that there's a kind of rhetoric about pitching um, where you tell people stuff they already know to kind of get them lulled into a sense of, yeah, yeah, I get it. I, I understand this. And then you go, but, and, and you say, uh, yeah, every, for instance, somebody pitched uh, a, a story one time as uh, everybody knows about Abraham Lincoln, greatest president ever freed the slaves, supposedly, uh, you know, uh, was assassinated to help keep the country together through the civil war. But, what you didn't know is Abraham Lincoln was a vampire hunter. So that's how they pitched Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter and uh, made a string of movies out of that. Um, so so the, the, the sort of turning point in it is an important thing. It sort of hooks the audience, it lulls them into thinking, we know about this, we understand this, and then there's that but. And I think that runs through scenes and it runs through uh, the, the whole structure of uh, a long-running series, uh, episode by episode and season by season, uh, you think you got it figured out, but there's you know another twist. So uh, this this is part of how I think about stories. Sure. And there's one additional word that if I were to take your elevator pitch and refine it, which makes me very self-conscious of the fact that, you know, the guy that refines all the best stories and has been teaching the framework, all of a sudden I'm going to give him notes. There's one word that I think is super important, and that's the word transformation. Mm 
Mm -hmm. Right. We love watching stories and the hero's journey because we want to see transformation. A question that I ask my students all the time when they're on their hero's journey, usually they're coming to me around the point of either I've realized the ordinary world, meaning my current job or current circumstances are not one that I want anymore. And they're giving themselves the call to adventure. But all of a sudden, like I I can't do this. It's too scary. I don't know how to do it, whatever. And I say, well, what, what kind of stories do you want to tell? Well, I'm really interested in human interest stories where, you know, the character goes on a journey and there's some real transformation. And I'm like, oh, so basically every story that's ever been told in the history of mankind, right? But it really is all about we want to watch some form of transformation. Yeah, I totally would agree with that. Um, I I sort of uh, noted that as I was telling it, uh, that that is an important and necessary uh, element. Uh, there's, There's one exception to that, which uh, I kind of tentatively leave room for this, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, there There might be a, a kind of story we could imagine where the whole point of the story is that the hero doesn't transform, mm-hmm. that they stay exactly the same all the way through. And that can work um, uh, w- when you're dealing with something like, let's say, the Lone Ranger, where the guy, his qualities are known and they stay the same. Uh, he might transform within the episode uh, by uh, taking on a disguise, which the Lone Ranger and other characters like that often do. But um, he's the Lone Ranger starting, middle, and ending. Another version of that would be uh, where a character doesn't transform to a tragic effect, where um, they should have transformed. They had every opportunity to transform, uh, to change their behavior or learn something or try a different path, and they didn't. And usually that ends up uh, as a sad case where where you've missed your opportunity to transform. Mm-hmm. So uh, I would leave room within that uh, for, for that. Sure. But, uh, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, I think you're right from the audience's point of view is that they might enjoy the vacation from that once in a while, but most of the time, uh, this is what they really eat up is uh, the the fact that people do change. I mean, it's kind of a promise or a hope that we can transform, that we can change, uh, that others around us can change and learn and grow. Um, so stories uh, sort of play into that desire that we have. Uh, but it certainly is, is fascinating uh, to watch. And I think this goes back to uh, the earliest forms of storytelling, which were dance and, you know, uh, uh, ritual performances uh, where an ordinary person would go into a state of mind and maybe also enhance it with costumes and makeup and so forth, but transform themselves into an animal and, and become that animal for a period of time and go through maybe the life stages of the animal's transformation of uh, life and birth, life and death. Uh, and, and people would just watch that with uh, big saucer eyes uh, because there is something fascinating uh, about that. It's almost supernatural to see somebody transform, but uh, we, uh, we, we do gravitate towards that pattern. 
Sure. And uh, so then the, the addendum would be there's either transformation or lack of a transformation. Yeah. And another thing you talk yeah. about, too, that you alluded to a little bit is that maybe the the main character of the hero doesn't transform, but they create transformation around them. I think you've given right. the the, the Axel Foley example in Beverly yeah. Hills Cop, which for our right. generation, we all know that story. We've got the younger generation, Axel who, Beverly Hills what? Right. Like maybe right. they know about the remake, but, it, you know, the, there's some form of transformation, even if it's not the hero, they might be creating it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think uh, we uh, uh, seek that as as a, a, a desire for ourselves <clears throat> that we want to get out of our rut and we look to stories that uh, that promise that. Which I think is what kind of where I want to go next and then really dig into how do we apply this to our own lives. Mm -hmm. But to really get more existential, I want to talk a little bit about why as humans we so desperately desire stories. It's not a matter of, oh, look at all the, the shiny objects of we've got the Dolby theater and the screen and now we love stories. Like it's since Kate paintings and dances and everything else, stories are an integral part of who we are. Just going back to not just the, the hero's journey in Joseph Campbell, but I know that a lot of your work is also informed by human psychology and mm -hmm. Carl Jung. Why is it that storytelling and stories are the way that we make sense of the world? Why is it so important to us? Well, this one is a chicken and egg situation mm -hmm. uh, where you can't really ever get to because we don't have the right kind of time machines to do this. We can't go back and observe the moment when people figured out how to tell stories. Um, I think there was an evolution of the brain that we grew. Uh, a level of the brain at a certain point in evolution that maybe accidentally has this storytelling thing, or maybe that was part of the design. <clears throat> I don't know. But um, it, it, it is a, a almost uniquely human uh, ability. Uh, they, they say that there is some storytelling ability among some animals uh, that uh, – dogs can communicate quite a bit. We just had a story this morning about a poor dog that uh, fell into a well and his friend dog simply sat beside the hole in the ground and barked. And uh, that dog was telling a story. And and uh, so there's a little bit of a sense that it's beyond humans. But, um, you know, we, we seem to have developed uh, a, a very sophisticated way of doing this and I think the key to it is um, thinking metaphorically uh, and that that's how stories operate for us. And what they do for us is they give us comparisons. Uh, every story is a metaphor. And since we are all, I think you can say this confidently, we are all profoundly self-centered. We think it's about us. We think every story is really about us. And if it's not about us, then we're not interested in that story. You know, it's too remote. It's too distant. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear this in uh, critiques of uh, art films sometimes that uh, it just it felt very remote to me. And I couldn't I was not involved with the characters and I was watching from a distance. Um, so it's what that really means is it wasn't about me. And uh, or, or I couldn't find myself in it or find something to compare to my own situation. I, I, I know just with music that uh, if I'm in the car and scanning stations and I come to uh, 
a love song or some song that's relevant to me, I can't help myself. I reach out and I turn it up. I turn the volume up to get the message. And, and I take stuff out of the lyrics of the song to go, oh, yeah, that's that's like in my life. That's like in my situation. Uh, and so you're always looking for this. You're thirsting for uh, clues and uh, tips and hints about uh, how to live better and improve your situation. And, and stories give us uh, a fountain of of that. And, and I think it's just part of the wonderful thing of being human that we uh, enjoy, uh, as I do with my wife, as we watch streaming shows every evening, um, we might talk for two or three days about a scene, you know, and, and, and go, well, what did that mean? And, and how did... Isn't that like something that happened to us? Uh, so you're always relating things back to your own experience. We're kind of selfish that way, but, mm -hmm. but it's good for the movie Every, business. Except for kind of selfish where, you know, I totally agree. Like you said, we're all inherently wired to be self-centered just for a sense of yeah. self preservation and evolution, right? right? We always sure. want to make it about us. The idea that stories are metaphors, I think is so important. And there's an additional line in your book that I want to quote that I think is so important to understanding why storytelling is such a vital skill, not just if you want to make a living as a writer or an editor, but if you just want to design a life that's more attuned to who you are, you say that the ideas in storytelling can be applied to understanding almost any human problem. We are problem solvers. And we use movies and television and music and all the various other art forms that tell stories to help us problem solve, right? It might be metaphorical and it might be fictional, but there's some sense of truth in it because the story is being told by another human being and we use it to help problem solve ideas. Yes, I, I definitely would uh, go along with that. Um, it was brought to my attention very soon after I started uh, lecturing and I took my memo and expanded it a little bit, my seven page memo and uh, made copies of it and sold those at writers conferences and uh, found that uh, there was a, a, a very thirsty audience uh, looking for some clues about the structure, uh, particularly romance writers. They were the ones who took to it uh, most uh, readily right off the bat. People started coming up to me and saying, I, I'm not a screenwriter. I'm not here. I'm not a romance writer. I'm a, a practical nurse. I'm a, a travel writer. I, I'm, I'm a, a, a training to be a policeman. I'm this, that, and the other. I, I'm a veteran. I'm this and that and the other. And I found everything you're saying was a very accurate reflection of what I went through training to be a nurse, going to war, uh, being a policeman, uh, all these different walks of life. Uh, so the hero's journey pattern, I realized very quickly, was describing something bigger than just how do you tell a nicer story uh, and be a little more commercial. Uh, somebody uh, told me this This was... Uh, when I, I worked with some people who were in the uh, justice system working with couples that were splitting up and they were trying to help them navigate through the families, navigate through a, a divorce. Uh, and they had found that this hero's journey pattern matched up with the things that were happening 
in their lives and actually gave them some roles to play uh, of uh, I'm the hero and uh, uh, I've got obstacles and I have to overcome them. And what are the tricks that the heroes in the stories use that I can use in my life? And one of the uh, uh, psychologists who was running this program said, uh, you don't know this, but when you wrote that book, you did a social good. And uh, unpacking that, I, I think what he meant, uh, I took it as a great compliment, was that um, you've, you've identified something that in some sense is real and uh, is useful. And it has applications in all these other disciplines. And so in this stage, uh, I'm collecting those and I'm, I'm fascinated by that, uh, uh, how many people from different walks of life recognize it and say, uh, you filled in three or four little blanks in my pattern. I already had some of it. And that's how I was. I, I had some glimpses uh, of the structure. But then when I met Campbell's ideas, it was like, oh, tick, 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 tick. Everything just fell into uh, a neat structure. Uh, so I'm, I'm pleased to, to have, have found that uh, application. Well, I'm going to add to your collection and I'm going to share what brought me to both you and this book is that I, too, have been just trying to figure out my own journey in life and have fairly recently in the last decade or so been making the transition from being a primarily Hollywood film and television editor, editing TV shows, movies, trailers and whatnot. Uh, realizing that I had a calling to do more, right? So my ordinary world, if we're going to use this structure, my ordinary world was I spent most of my adult life making my living as a Hollywood film and television editor, realized there, there's a calling to do more, and I was refusing the call. Well, this is scary. Yeah. I don't know how to do it. I'm not ready. Right. I'm raging imposter syndrome, right? And then throughout this transition have been learning, well, how do I surround myself with the right guides and mentors to learn the skills that I need to overcome all of the many tests and allies and enemies and obstacles, literally deciding five years ago, I wanted to learn how to overcome physical obstacles by becoming an American Ninja Warrior. And in the process, what I discovered is that of all these areas, the area where I really specialize and I'm very, very good is when somebody has the call to adventure, usually an innermost call to adventure like I had, where I have a calling to do something different, better, or more, how do I connect with the guide or the mentor? And I couldn't quite help people understand the process of where they were and breaking down their story. Then I read the writer's journey. I'm like, duh, moron. Your job is to meet people at the refusal of the call, help them overcome the imposter syndrome that is the innermost refusal, mm -hmm. and answer the next question, how do I connect with and find the mentor? And I want to kind of walk you through my process, and I, you can just tear it apart, or you can tell me that it works, but I, I want to walk you through how I'm using this structure, and then you can help me flesh it out more. So one of the discoveries that I found in helping hundreds of people connect with mentors and guides, whether it's somebody that just does a meeting with them over coffee, they become what I call their Miyagi mentor, because for me, the Karate Kid was my Star Wars. So it could be their Obi-Wan mentor or whatever it is, connecting people with others so they can surround themselves with the guides and mentors that lead them along their journey. And I realized that when people are reaching out and connecting, they have no idea how to tell their stories. And kind of the fundamental discovery was that it's not that the people in the world don't want to help you. It's that they don't know how to help you. And if you can better structure where you are in your own hero's journey, 
then people will say, oh, I could potentially be your guide or your mentor because I believe that by and large, even in Hollywood, most people want to help other people. So that's the structure that I've been using. And essentially, when I ask them the question, where are you in your hero's journey? Here's how I've pieced it together. And you can tear this apart or tell me this is working or not. Here's where I am now, meaning here's my ordinary world. Here's where I'm going next. This is my call to adventure and the journey that I'm on. Here's what's stopping me and what, where I need guidance and support. Here are my obstacles. So am I, am I doing your work in this structure justice or do you have notes? Ah, no, I, I think that's a very good uh, summary of the thing. Um, let me think about that for a sec. I, what, well, my reaction is that um, this is a, a matter of, of meshing a, a, a need on the part of the students, let's call them, uh, and an emptiness in the mentor. The mentor has to have a space where the the, the mentee uh, can come in. Uh, so they have to have a missing piece or a need uh, that responds to this need. And it may be blocked and it may be uh, hidden, but uh, that's a, a wonderful thing. We love that when we see that in stories. When somebody, let's say an older person, uh, has uh, failed or they've uh, lost their faith and uh, then a young person comes along eagerly going, well, hey, you know how to do this. Why don't you tell me how to do this? And they resist a little while, just like the heroes resist and, and refuse their call. But the mentor also gets a, a call to uh, to be involved. And uh, it's wonderful and kind of magical when those things uh, do match up. Uh, I, I was lucky that way. I had a few uh, mentors who uh, took the time uh, or who just said the the few things. The main thing about a mentor is a gift. They 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 give the hero something, reassurance, guidance, uh, uh, some uh, uh, words of wisdom or uh, principles. Uh, uh, all, all those things are are forms of uh, of gifts, and that's a very strong bond when that. When that happens, uh, gifts uh, have a, a very strong emotional value. Uh, so uh, that, that's part of how that mentor thing works. So now what I want to dig into next is really what we've kind of been building to this whole time is not just how do I apply the hero's journey to be a better writer, a better novelist, a better editor and storyteller, a better composer, a better director, all of which it can very easily be done and many are doing it successfully. But how do we apply it to our own lives? And I think that the, the question where I want to start is how do we write great hero characters? And I don't mean on the page. I mean, what are the, the key core components? If I'm going to write a great character that's my hero and I'm the hero, what are some of the components that I need to really pay attention to if I want to write a great story where other people want to be involved in it? Well, you know, here you um, are building a character and I use that in two senses. And that's kind of what I'm studying right now is the whole business of character in the sense of the, these personalities that we create, our characters, but also uh, those characters have this thing called character, which is a set of characteristics, uh, a set of tendencies or behaviors. And um, so you you need to, when you create a character, start assembling a package 
or maybe you make a list of the things you know about the character, that they're creative, that they're fearful, that they're uh, friendly, that they're closed off, that they're ashamed. You know, you 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 fish around and get down as much as you can. Um, but uh, a key item in this list goes back to uh, some earlier wound or uh, disappointment or failure. And uh, it's kind of a truism in this world of storytelling that uh, every character has a scar or a wound of some kind uh, from a, a past experience. And if they don't, they're perfectly innocent. Well, the scar is going to come pretty soon in the story. That may be one of the first things that happens, uh, as in fairy tales, where everything's fine until uh, the mother dies and then the father, you know, finds another wife and she's, you know, the typical uh, bad stepmother. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a bad cliche, but uh, it, 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 it is a shorthand way that, that fairy tales have of saying uh, something went wrong. Um, and that is kind of a shadow that hangs over uh, the character for the rest of the story. And it kind of raises a question, will they be able to overcome that? And I think the questions are uh, vital for this business of connecting with the audience and getting them oriented. So they're on board. Uh, what, what you want is for them to identify with your main character, especially, they should identify in some way with all the characters. Kind of, I like something about even the villain, or there's something uh, attractive or clever about almost every character. But with the main character, especially, it almost becomes you. Um, there's, they have enough similar characteristics. They might be wildly different from you, but there's something there that you can usually relate to and, and see in yourself. So what's happening to the hero is happening to you. And we try to hook up with questions like, will they get what they want? Will they discover what they need? Those are two different things. And that's a, a major thing to understand, I think, about characters is they're driven by wants, uh, usually external things, I want to uh, win. I want to get the treasure. I want to win love or something like that. Uh, but that usually masks something internal uh, and uh, harder to pin down, which is uh, I want respect and I I, I want uh, safety or I, 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 I need to belong to something. I need to be part of something. I need to have a real relationship, something uh, that they may not acknowledge right away, but that that the story teaches them. So uh, it's, it's an interaction between uh, the hero and the story. And I think the story is an active participant in, in this process. The story is almost like another character that arranges things so that the hero does learn what they need. And also, you know, you get what you ask for, get you what you want usually, but in an expected twisted way, that's, that's how the story uh, has its fun and, and uh, participates in the process. It's, it says, it listens to the hero saying, I want love. I want uh, to win. 
And it says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that, but I'm, I'm going to give it to you in a twisted, unexpected way that's going to teach you a little lesson about what you really need. So the story, uh, I think, is, is uh, an, an active participant itself. Yeah. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core 360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. And what one of the key components here that's not just important, I think, for just writing a, a great movie or great TV show, but really in telling your own story is this idea that you said that they must be able to identify with your main character where you, it, you almost become that main character. And in the real world, when I'm helping people connect with their fellow mentors or guides or figuring out their journey, there's something that I call the empathy factor, uh -huh. where if you're yeah. if you're reaching out to somebody, when you tell your story and structure it, it's not, hey, I would like to get this job and can you pass along my resume or share this? It's here's where I am in my journey. And the more vulnerable you are and the more you share your struggles, the more the right person says, oh my God, that was me five years ago. I remember those days. Well, now that I understand where you need help, I can provide that help and support because you're on the same journey that I was. I'm just further along, which triggers that empathy. So I think you're so right. And that not just in writing great characters, but in writing yourself as a hero, you need to put yourself in the right people where they can identify with you and empathize with your journey and your struggle. And there's two other things that I want to pull right out of your book that I think are so essential and obvious for a character you're writing, but are just as obvious and essential when you're writing yourself, rewriting your story where you're the hero. You say that in order to be invested in any story, we have to know what the main character wants and what drives them, right? What is their motivation and also, your characters have to be real to you before they can be real to an audience, which to me is authenticity. Mm -hmm. So I always tell people that you can't just kind of fake it and put yourself out there and hope that you get what you want. But you also can't just, you know, make it all about you and well, whatever, as opposed to here's why I'm motivated to do this, because people are driven and invested in other people's stories because their motivations are similar and they connect with people that are more authentic. So how can we, with ourselves, or even if we're just writing a character, really focus on making sure the motivation is clear and we're staying authentic to ourselves? 
Well, um, I, on the the first point uh, about uh, needing to know what the character wants or wishes for, uh, this became clear to me when I sat in on a friend's class. He was teaching at uh, Columbia in New York, screenwriting class, and um, we uh, read the first 10 pages of everyone's script and had a table reading and assigned parts and so forth. And I noticed that some of the scripts uh, had great dialogue, clever characters, uh, interesting plot situation, but I was absolutely unengaged and not attached until somebody, usually the main character, said, you know, I wish or mm. I, I want to find I want to you know I want or wish when those magic words were spoken suddenly I'm in and because I know where's the arrow of this story headed and so I begin to want that for the if I like the character if I've accepted them I want them to be happy and or or want them to get what they want or what they deserve so um that that's absolutely necessary for uh, for connecting uh, with the audience. Um, and then what was the second part? Uh, it was uh, the idea of both the motivation, but also the authenticity. Yeah, the authenticity. Um, I don't know uh, uh, about that. I, I think um, I, I go here to some uh, screenwriting teachers I've had who uh, said, uh, you know, you might want to write about uh, the Medici family in the 14th century, but uh, why don't you put that aside and uh, on your first couple of scripts, write about something that's coming up from the hot asphalt of your own soul, you know, uh, and, and give me something. Uh, it might be a tiny little story about how you stood up to a bully or something, but uh uh, you'll you'll find more juice in that, uh, and it's an interesting thing I observe watching streaming shows that um, sometimes you'll be watching the show and it's fanciful and you know, that couldn't happen and that's ridiculous and then suddenly a scene comes along and just slaps you and you go that must have happened to him or someone like him. Like uh, my wife and I are watching very behind the curve, but we're watching Breaking Bad. And uh, every night we get another dose. How of lucky are you to be able to watch that show for the first time? I would yeah. erase my memory to have that uh, ability to watch it again for the first time. It was a great thing to set it aside and ignore it until later and then go through it. Um now and I, I I'm desperate not to have any spoilers and, and know what what what's going to happen, but we had that reaction that uh, either Vince Gilligan or somebody on his team must have had cancer, uh, or they knew someone who had that particular type of cancer because all of the stuff and we have it in the family, so uh, we recognize these things and 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 knew that that has the slap. Of uh, of authenticity. There's even a German word for this called Erlebnis, which means uh, lived. It's a lived experience, and you can tell when when a, a scene comes along like that. Even if it's about the Medici family in the 1400s, it'll stand up and have more of a spine. Uh, you know, your imagination is great, and it can come up with very convincing things where you'd think that you'd been through the plague or something, 
but um, you sort of know when somebody has uh, gone inside and pulled out a wire from their own uh, tangled story, and uh, and we value that. You know, that's that's treasure. Yeah. And what I've found too, kind of going, uh, connecting both this idea of authenticity, going back to making sure that we're engaged with the character, we see ourselves in them, and there's this empathy factor. Uh, when I first started doing the podcasting and the writing years ago, when I was still editing full time, and this was like a hobby, uh, instead of kind of becoming a, a full time, both obsession and way to make a living, um, it started with, I have discovered this elixir. I have cracked the code. If you want to be healthy at your workstation or whatever it is, here's the answer. Nobody listened. It was like, who is this guy telling us how to live our lives? And then what changed is I wrote a, a blog article that really I had no intention of it becoming anything, but it was all about this idea. And this was 10 years ago now about uh, I called it a classic case of post-production burnout. And it was just me writing a diary entry about me experiencing burnout and depression and the overwhelm of the industry. Mm -hmm. And the reaction was, oh, my God, nobody talks about this. And oh, my God, this is me, too. And somebody else is talking about it. And then mm -hmm. I realized I was telling the wrong story. Before the hero was, I am impervious and I am impenetrable and I'm invincible and here's the elixir to be superhuman yourself. And then I realized, no, I need to have flaws and I need to be vulnerable. Yeah. My ordinary world was one of misery and long hours and burnout, right? But I've now found that as I'm on my journey, I'm making these new discoveries and I'm pulling myself out of the cave and I'm learning how to, to handle the tests and the allies and the enemies. So I'm still on my journey. I'm still in the trenches. But if you come along with me, I can empathize with where you might be and I can help you along. Once I learned how to structure my story with that authenticity and that vulnerability, the game changed. Yeah, I, I hear that. Uh, I, I will use the phrase, you'll hear this in my lectures. I'll say, uh, uh, I'm going to burden you with a uh, uh, an embarrassing personal anecdote. And I'll tell some story about myself. And uh, it has a magic effect of uh, relieving the audience of this tension about I have to get everything down and he's the expert and all that. Uh, it brings me down to earth. Uh, and I started doing this uh, almost immediately after the book was published. Uh, the book was a magic carpet and it took me traveling all over the world because it was translated into, thankfully translated into many languages. And I was invited a lot of places. And my first trip was to Spain, and I found myself, I mean, it was comical how precisely I was being led through this uh, ordeal of uh, hero's journey things exactly as I had described in my book uh, in an abstract theoretical way. But here it was in reality. I, I was, uh, you know, uh, in the uh, test allies and enemies phase, uh, I'm in Spain. I don't know how the money works. I don't know how light switch works. I don't know how to open a box of orange juice because it's a different principle. And uh, some people look nice and they're not. And some people don't look nice and they are nice. And, you know, all of my I was like Dorothy in the in Oz. I, 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 I was completely disoriented and met a moment in the middle of my first trip to Spain that was a true hero's journey. This is going to end up very badly, and I, I'm going to either fail or die or lose my passport or wreck my car. Uh, and I got through that and uh, was transformed by it. And, uh, 
you know, I, I just am, uh, was amused by how exactly that followed my own pattern. Um, and that convinced me to be uh, more personal in my presentations and to bring out this uh, this sort of thing. One, one of my standard, reliable uh, tearjerker stories is about getting lost in the woods and following this uh, hero's journey pattern to uh, a, a revelation that was uh, that was very helpful about trusting the path uh, that uh, you just keep marching and and the, that the road is there. Uh, a lot of people have been on it before you, but uh, uh, if you trust it, you you'll you'll come out okay. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because I know that's yeah. an integral part of everything you teach is this idea, and this should literally be on a poster framed in front of just about everybody's computers or on the ceiling above their bed. Trust the path, mm -hmm. which sounds great. It's an amazing Instagram platitude card to post to your followers. Right. But the big question is how? How do I trust the path, especially in Hollywood? As you know, it's so completely unknown. If I go on Google and I type in how to become a doctor, I know in 15 seconds yeah. what the steps are to become a right. doctor. Right. But how do I trust the path when everybody's paths are different? Yeah, that's that was a tough one. I, I noted that uh, difference in professions uh, that, you know, there are steps to becoming a lawyer and there's a test and, you know, so forth, certification and so on. But there is no such thing. Uh, you, it's It's really up to you to uh, give yourself the degree, to give yourself the uh, uh, the official certification. So uh, you take that uh, take that on to yourself. Yeah, and that's that's one of the services that I'm trying to provide is a little right. bit more structure and let everybody know that you are going to have a unique path to everybody else. But there is somewhat of a formula that if you follow foundational steps, and part of that formula is the hero's journey, knowing this is what's coming next and it's not unknown and you're not the only person that's ever been tested yeah. or dealt with allies or enemies. And you're like, oh, this is actually me on the path as opposed to me getting off the path trying to help them develop those fundamental skills and steps to handle the the obstacles and recognize where they are, which kind of brings me to this next question, which I'm not sure it's an easy one to answer. And I certainly don't have the answer and you may not, but I just want to workshop it. If somebody's gone through and listened to this, they go through and they read more about the, the different stages in the hero's journey. Can you provide a fairly simple way to answer the question, how do I know what stage I'm at? How do uh -huh. we figure that out? Uh -huh. Uh huh. Well, um, I think you um, you have to check in with your uh, your feelings and your instincts there, um, especially about uh, crossing thresholds. Which actually I mentioned it once, but it it comes up a couple of times in this idea of the hero's journey, uh, Campbell talks about it, that there's a threshold going into the special world and there's a threshold coming out of the special world. And then at the end, another one. Uh, so maybe there's four or five. Uh, at the very beginning, you enter the story, you cross a threshold when you decide to get involved in the issue, you cross another when you face your fears, you cross another when you decide, okay, it's time to finish, and then when it's done, that's another door that uh, you you can go through uh, to the next stage. So I, I think um, it it has to do with if you can step back a little bit from that 
edge from that threshold that you're at to see, well, how big a journey is this? That will help you determine roughly what stage you're in. Am I at the beginning and I have like 24 more obstacles ahead or am I nearly done? And I just have that very hard, but simple in a way, last choice to make. Uh, you, you encounter that in the editing room uh, and, uh, that you uh, you cut it a bunch of different ways and then you get it pretty much like you like it. But there's that last shot or, you know, maybe two or three frames that can make all the difference. But you you, you have that feeling then that I'm I'm just about done and, mm-hmm. and I just have to work through this last uh, this last bit. So I think that maybe helps answer that question is is if you can if you can pull yourself up to the moon and look down at it you maybe have a better sense of of uh, how many stages are uh, ahead of me or or is is that something i can't deal with or know right now and i just have to make a little short story out of this and just get out of this particular uh scene that i'm in or or uh, act in my life. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of identifying the thresholds and kind of zooming out. Mm -hmm. And where this goes next, maybe it's the second part to the same question. Maybe it's a new question. But I think that if we're going to look at the structure of a TV series, Mm -hmm. it can be very similar to the structure of life because it's not just one journey, right? You have, like for us as humans, there's one ultimate hero's journey. We're born, we live, we die, right? But then there are a multitude of other ones in there. And if we were to look at a TV series, you have the arc of the whole show. You have the first frame of episode one in the pilot, the last frame of the series finale, right? That's the life of the character. But then it's broken up into seasons, and then it's broke up into episodes, and then sequences, and then scenes. So the obvious is the ultimate hero's journey is we're born, we live, we die. But then it seems to me we can also break it down to, well, you know, one completed hero's journey is childhood. Another one is adulthood. Another one is, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the the senior years or the golden years. Uh, so if we're going to step back, it's kind of like, first of all, what season would I be in and what what would this episode be? But then where it gets even more complicated, and as an editor, this is really uh, a, a big struggle was for me for a long time and for a lot of younger editors is understanding that there's not just the hero's journey for the whole season or whole episode. There's a hero's journey from start to finish in most scenes, right? Mm -hmm. You have a three-act structure from the beginning of a scene to the end of a scene. It's just like inception of inception of inception. So how can we apply this general structure of a series, for example, to break down even more clearly if we zoom out, where am I in my journey or which journey am I on? Yeah, uh, this uh, whole idea of structuring a long work uh, came up because most of my uh, time in the business was spent looking at the 90 minute to two hour Mm -hmm. idea uh, that that was what I was tasked to do was to evaluate things that would be a normal uh, theatrical movie. But it's a whole new game. And uh, now you have to think in terms of these uh, bigger arcs and levels of magnification. You know, you're 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 going from close up of uh, one little scene. Is he going to tell the truth? Is he going to break? Is he going to uh, uh, manage to plant the bomb or whatever it is? 
Um, and then bigger thing, will he overcome his resistance to uh, getting involved with the, the group? And that might take a whole season to work out. And then the whole show is about uh, will the person, uh, will their way of life be changed? And and that, that was helpful for me to think of it in terms of those questions. Uh, will he, will she uh, tell the truth in the little scene? Uh, in in the episode, uh, will he get out of the jam that he's in uh, in the season? Uh, will she find the proper mate that she's looking for? And in the end, will their way of life be destroyed or will they be able to preserve it? Uh, if you look at something like Downton Abbey or Breaking Bad or, you know, any long running show, that's a good way to break it down is, is by... Uh, the, the level of magnitude of, of those questions. And I think a good way to think about this is um, in a spiral form that the, mm. the, 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 the stories and people's lives go in a spiral sort of pattern where, okay, uh, I went to high school and that was a whole journey. Okay. Then I went into uh, the military. That was a whole journey, three or four years. Then I went into film school. That was two or three years and so forth. And then my first job at Disney was, a, a you know, another merry-go-round. Um, and, um, you know, you get spit out at the end of those and pick yourself up and go to another one. Um, uh, but each one seems to go around the same circle uh, or follows the same railroad track, and uh, you, you see these same general kind of stations over and over again. And this is kind of the question for all of us is, is am I learning anything? And, and am I just making the same mistakes over and over again? And, mm -hmm. and I, I, I hope, you know, that I'm uh, learning and that my performance is getting better. I love that. So the reason that I love doing podcasting is that I, if I had to pick one identity and I wear a whole lot of different hats, but if I had to pick one identity, it's teacher. Uh -huh. I was born and raised surrounded by teachers. I love educating. I love teaching and I love inspiring. And my hope is that many of my students come away inspired by a new idea or a concept or a thought of which I think you've shared many. But I just want to share very quickly that if this, if this wasn't a giant aha light bulb moment for everybody else, you just dropped a game changer for me, which is visualizing the stages of our lives as a spiral. That had never occurred to me. And I've always, I tried, just like you do, I try to take really complex ideas and break them into very simple frameworks so they're usable for people. And I've never been able to visualize because I'm a very visual learner and teacher. How do I visualize the hero's journey? And as you were talking, I was already thinking, I need to email my 3D designer and I need to talk to him about how do I visualize the various stages of our career and our journeys in life as a spiral. Like that was a game changer. And I cannot wait to extrapolate that into a very teachable lesson because that was just like a huge aha moment for me. Yeah, I, it resonates for me in memory. I'm thinking about uh, different times when uh, I would come around on one of these paths and I would go, you know, this is familiar. I've been through something like this before and I can't even remember right now what it was, but boy, this seems familiar. And then it would come to me, oh yeah, I've confronted this kind of devil before. I've been in this kind of jam before. How did I get, oh yeah, I had this technique or uh, way. Um, a lot of this, uh, and I think this is uh, speaking to your calling as as a, a teacher and a helper um, is dealing with fear. 
And it uh, it kept coming back up again on the spiral uh, so that I eventually developed uh, techniques for dealing with that. And one of them is simply to acknowledge. Acknowledge, I'm afraid, you know, which we don't want to say. Uh, we 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 have a fear of saying we're afraid. And so uh, just acknowledging I'm afraid is a big, you relax, you breathe better as soon as you say that. Uh, and then you develop a relationship with fear. You almost personify it. And you say, oh, I know what you are that's stopping me. Um, you are the funny old Mr. Fear. I know you. And you know what? I'm not afraid of you because I faced you before. And, you know, you didn't stop me. You tried. Uh, maybe you uh, headed me off for some good experience I should have had. And I'm sorry I, I listened to you. Uh, and I'm not listening to you now. So you you get a dialogue going with your own uh, hesitations and and fears. And, and just naming the thing fear. Uh, gives you a little bit of mastery over it. Instead of this, like, I don't know, I feel weird about this and I can't put words to it. Uh, it, it just, that simple act is, is powerful. Man, you should uh, double as a therapist because <laughs> that that right there is just digging right into the heart of uh, what so many people deal with far beyond how do I write a better screenplay <laughs> is how do I acknowledge and confront fear? Because ultimately you develop and master the skill of acknowledging and confronting your fears. You can accomplish just about anything. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, that's a metaphor, not just for writing, but a metaphor for life. Yes, it is. Yeah. This is great. Um, yeah, I just saw a good documentary that Jonah Hill did with mm -hmm. his uh, therapist. And, yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, it's very good. And the therapist uh, has a number of tools that he uses. Um, and one of them is something he calls Part X. And mm -hmm. Part X is what I call Funny Mr. Fear. Uh, it, it's whatever's stopping you, whatever shadows and shame you have or uh, ideas about yourself that are limiting. Uh, that's what he calls part X. And uh, he, he has a, a way of uh, uh, maybe I made this up in my head, but but you can take that X and turn it into a plus sign. If you just mm -hmm. look the, the picture a little bit. And I love working that way with very, very simple images. Uh, a lot of my PowerPoint shows are uh, often two slides. Uh, mm -hmm. One slide shows the uh, A possibility, and then it's flipped or reversed in uh, the second. Uh, an example of that is the idea of focus. I show a slide that uh, shows an empty stage, and it's got about 18 lights shining all over the place. Uh, and this represents your ambition as a writer to tell everything. I want to put it all in there and tell, you know, the whole history of the world. But the next slide is all those lights have been brought together into one beam to one spot on the stage. And that's focus. So when you take all of these, you know, competing uh, ideas that are competing for attention and you limit them and focus them down to one theme or one basic central idea, you get this uh, staggeringly different effect. Instead of scattered all over the place, it's all drawing your attention to one point. 
So uh, this, I mean, we should stay in, in, in touch about these um, simple graphic um, ways of, of getting across kind of profound uh, principles. I love it. You're, you and I are going to have to talk about my triple tornado technique because oh, um, it's, it's a three-dimensional <laughs> representation of using tornadoes to answer the question, what is the perfect dream job that is going to fulfill me in my life creatively? I um, won't get into it now, but I'm uh, working on a three-dimensional diagram. and like, But it, I think you and I think very, very similarly. Really well, difficult concept. How do we visualize it in a simple metaphor and give you simple steps that you can follow? So we're it must be the, the farm boys in us. I don't know what it is. <laughs> But yeah. must be the farm boys. But but uh, there's your there's your spiral, the tornado. Yeah, right. Then that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like my my metaphor is a spiral. It's slightly different, but you're right. A, a tornado is a spiral too. So um, I want to be uh, respectful of your time, of which I have not, because we're already five minutes over. But frankly, this conversation has been so engaging, and I've been looking forward to it for so long that uh, I just wanted to let you keep talking um, and really enjoy this. What I would like for my audience to know now is if they want to dig deeper into your work and they want to become better storytellers, what's the easiest way for them to be able to do that? Well, I think the best thing is to uh, to go to the book because I did, you know, sort of uh, pour everything into that, uh, the writer's journey. Uh, there's a, uh, uh, a second book called Memo from the Story Department, which I co-wrote with a friend of mine who was also a script reader. And uh, there I put uh, an additional pile of uh, principles and, and uh, things to draw from. Some of it's from uh, the old Greek way of thinking about drama, which I've studied a lot and enjoy uh, mining for good ideas. Some of it's from vaudeville and uh, from just general life experience. But those two uh, sources, uh, Memo from the Story Department and uh, The Writer's Journey, are the best way. I also have uh, a WordPress blog uh, that I, I infrequently will post things there, but there's some interesting backlog of stuff there uh, about different projects I've worked on and, and uh, adventures that I've had. So uh, those are some some starting points. Well, I can already tell you uh, for 100% fact that this is going to be an interview that I share is foundational educational content literally for years to come. Uh, so excited to finally have this in the can and chat with you and really, really hope that our paths cross, cross whether it's at an industry event or, you know, whether I'm bringing you in as a guest speaker at an event that I'm creating, whatever it is, I really look forward to the moment when you and I can meet in person and uh, talk in the, the language of spirals and visuals and shapes and everything else, because I think that uh, we have a lot in common there. But I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise and your time with our uh, audience today. So thank you so much, Chris. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Zach. And uh, you're doing good work. You're doing a social good, man. So keep at it. Appreciate that. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this interview with author and Hollywood story consultant, Chris Vogler. If you'd like to access the original show notes, simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash episode 205. And I very much appreciate you sticking with me for this entire five-part interview series with some of my favorite conversations about how you can better design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. If you'd like to download even more customized top five playlists of the best interviews from this entire podcast library, simply go to optimizeyourself.me slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and be well.